Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken. And I'm Randy Baker. And here on this podcast, we talk to the most interesting folk we can find who are true thought leaders and truly engage our minds and our brains and sometimes our emotions and passions. Fun thing about today's interview with Benjamin Bingham is that we kind of go broad. I mean, just like he did in his life and career, we're talking right from the beginning about all the way back to was it 1941, this amazing story of his father, all the way through his career starting out with organic farming and now in investment and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so it's it's wild and, and you need to, to hear the story. I mean, there's, there's Nazis and there's gold and there's all sorts of interesting connections that you just got to hear to believe. And what he's really a thought leader about is sort of investing with impact and uh, making a difference. And um, yeah, some really interesting insights from this interview. So let's jump to it. So nice to talk with you, Benjamin, uh, Ben. I have to dive in since we were just talking about your name. Min's son of the right hand, right? But in a way of like justice. And and, uh, that just kind of made me think also of what you were telling us about with uh, your father's story and that he, yeah, tell us about that. The the Mark Chagall reference, the, the amazing award that you accepted on his behalf, your name, all of those good things. Let's start out there. Yeah, it's good. I, I actually, my book, Making Money Matter, Impact Investing to Change the World, uh, I dedicated to my father uh, because of he inspired me to, you know, seek the truth, you know, the truth shall set you free and, and, and lots of different sayings that he lived by. And he was a diplomat in the foreign service in in France when the Vichy regime of Germany took over France with uh, the U.S. support and backing. And he didn't agree with it. He had actually been to Nazi Germany and seen Hitler and was uh, horrified by what, what he saw coming into that country. And so he worked with the resistance in France and helped thousands of people get visas. He was a vice consul. He was quite, quite young and in his late 30s. And um, his hair turned white in that year. He sent uh, my mother and, and my older brothers and sisters back to Georgia, where her family was. And he worked for that year, 1941, helping as many people as he could to get out and was given... Uh, some leeway by his superiors because Eleanor Roosevelt was uh, tacitly reporting what he, you know, supporting what he was doing. And so he worked very closely with Vary and Fry to help escape. There were 50 um, people that Eleanor Roosevelt specifically wanted to help get out of Europe. And among them was Mark Chagall, who he hid in his house. And we had an old movie of him carrying paintings into my father's house in Toulon. 
the painting behind me was done by my father in the last year of his life because um, we persuaded him to take up painting again. Uh, he could barely see, and he was quite bitter about what was going on in the world. I think he would be um, considered a conspiracy theorist now, but he knew a lot of the people that were behind the kinds of theories um, and the control of what's going on in the world. And so he became quite, quite bitter and we persuaded him to stop being so bitter and to paint. So he painted 54 canvases like the one before me, behind me here. And, you know, just put them on, a, on the bathtub and listened to classical music and kind of moved uh, in a eurythmic manner because he was a, he was also a, an anthroposophist, a, a Steiner, avid Steiner a follower. So he loved eurythmia and he was said, which is a movement. Uh, so he would move to the music and that's how he did the paintings. No way. Um, and um, wow. so when he, <laughs> one of the l last paintings he did was a copy of, anyway, it was a painting that was one of the first that sold for $5 million. And he made a copy of it and he left the grid on the, on the painting so you could see it was a copy. <laughs> and, I love that. And he said, if, if that painting was worth five million, this is worth at least 50,000. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, that. That was his, that was his um, you know, his legacy or his inheritance was his 54 paintings because he really didn't have a lot of capital left after raising 11 children. And, um, and you know, when he left the State Department in, he just, you know, basically uh, un unhappy with what was going on in, in, in politics because he had actually done his own investigation after he was taken out of his position at the demand of the Germans and sent to Argentina. And then he discovered that the gold that had been confiscated by the Nazis had been flowing through Argentina to South Africa. And supporting the um, apartheid regime, the the national, the Nazi party, basically the Nationalist Party in South Africa, and the State Department didn't allow him to publicize uh, his discovery, and so he resigned. Wow! So that's something that I don't even know if it's in the history books now. Um, it may be by now, but it was it was kept quiet. Wow! What a what a what an incredible framing. You know, speaking of art, what an incredible frame for your life. So one of 11 children, you're 9%, I guess, of a, <laughs> of a cool family, an interesting family. And the way you speak is so chill, is so calm. Uh, does that come from, I mean, so you've started up some really interesting businesses. You do amazing work. You're driven by impact, by changing the world, making it a better place. Clearly, you've pulled that from from your your father and so forth where does the demeanor come from the, the calm the chill the, the kindness hmm. i don't know i was i think i was born with it um to some extent my my sisters and brothers i think would note note that maybe but also you know almost 50 years of of daily meditation probably helps to some extent and you know you have 50 years so you started meditating before it was cool <laughs> yeah, I went. I left Yale after two years. I I was I, I was studying uh, fine arts and philosophy was what I was would have majored in because you major in your in your junior year. 
but I, the art studio was too small for me. I wanted to do bigger things. And, and, um, the, I didn't really want to work with snobby, um, graduate students for my last two years. I'd already taken a lot of the best courses from the best teachers. And so I went and studied biodynamic agriculture in England for two years. Um, and I farmed for 10 years um, after that. So a lot of my ideas also come from sustainable agriculture and the kind of ecology that that Steiner brought to bio, biodynamics was really um, kind of the forerunner of the organic movement. A lot of people give him credit for actually helping farmers figure out what to do when, when they, their competitors were using basically the um, excess nitrogen and phosphates and everything from bombing uh, from ammunition factories and exploding their crops and uh, the organic farmers, uh, the people that wanted to be organic didn't know what to do to, you know, to be able to uh, grow things as well. So they w went to Steiner and he gave a course, which is what I studied for two years um, instead of continuing at Yale. Right. So you, you started up, you started a couple of companies. You're yeah. the fund manager for a fund that invests in presumably um, impact-related businesses, but you're a tilled guy, okay? So I go back, I'm old enough to remember the movie Wall Street and Gordon Gecko in the 80s, and people my age think about the greed is good speech that Gordon Gecko gave. He's there in his suit and his slick back hair and the suspenders and the whole look that everybody in the 80s copied. Um, you're not like that. So what happened to a finance guy and a fund manager that prevented you from becoming Gordon Gecko-like? <laughs> I often talk about that. Uh, you know, we were the love generation. And what happened? Um, we got disenfranchised with free love. It, you know, there was so much... Uh, you know, dysfunction <laughs> and poverty and, and, you know, everything that we thought we believed in. I mean, I, I never stopped. So I went right into community building. And um, my first fundraising was for a place called Triform Camp Hill Community Now. It's been going uh, since, since we helped start it in 75, 70, wait, it was 78, I guess is when it started. But anyway, it's been going for a long time, and it's been very successful. So I, I learned, I learned how to work with money um, there, and and then you know continued farming as well and growing my own food. So I used to call when when I when I decided to become a financial advisor in two thousand. It was because I had raised money for this uh, nonprofit, but then I when I left there, I'd raised money for some technology companies that I felt were, you know, had relevant social purpose. But all the people that were investing, when I asked them about what they did with the rest of their money, it was always the same answer. Well, we only do interesting things with about 5% of our money. It's kind of like the foundations, you know, we, we let the experts, you know, maintain our corpus and make sure that we uh, always have our money and then we get 5% to do what we want with. And that really bothered me. So I just, I, I just wondered, and I became an advisor with the 
purpose of figuring out how you could do 100% of your uh, assets in ways that were, you know, were affected by your values. I think there are a lot of people like me, or to your question, you know, why I think there are a lot of people in my generation who want to do the right thing with their money, who maybe felt foolish, you know, after the 60s and, and, and became more conventional in the 70s and 80s, but maybe now they, they're looking back and they're wishing, you know, they could do really good things with the money that they've accumulated. So that's kind of who I'm working with now because there's so much that needs to be done. There's so much uh, where money can can play a poor part. And I think of money as an expression of who you are. It's an expression of your intention. And if people could, you know, wear it like a badge, you know, remember when um, there, there was a, an initiative at one time where people should, there was a branding or marketing company that wanted to make, everybody have their own sort of t-shirt that said everything that they cared about on their t-shirt. I don't know what happened to that initiative. I don't think it went anywhere, but but the idea that we should know that what we do with our money is actually expressing who we are, what we care about every time we buy something, you know, are we thinking about the people that, that made the stuff and were they paid fairly you know are we thinking about how it affected the environment for this to be made and what's going to happen to the leftovers when we're done with it so it's and money you know it's just that's kind of an imaginative process it's a little bit of a meditative process i'm asking and i my next book is going to be more about that it's like how do we get inspired to do the right things with our money and how do we have intuitions about the future, you know, that are going to be the most relevant things to be investing in that will probably increase in value because they'll be the most relevant. So these are things that I think about. Most funds raise money from institutions or wealthy individuals to invest with a, an expected return on that investment. Are you finding that you're raising money from individuals who are philanthropically minded, whose return is based, measured not in percentage of the investment, but in some other way? Or do you still find it's this institutional money that is coming into your funds because they want to be seen as having a, a caring nature, for want of a better word? Well, unfortunately, we haven't, we haven't uh, evolved that much in terms of our relationship with money. So even the most philanthropic people, um, if you lose money for them, don't like it. And anyway, I, I think that the most profitable things, it's like what I was saying about intuition, the most profitable things are the most relevant things that are actually meeting people's needs. And that that's what we should be focusing on is meeting meeting needs in a way that actually lifts us up as a, as a society and, and, and lifts up and improves the environment. Um, those are the most, uh, there's no reason why these should be less profitable. In fact, there's many reasons they should be more profitable. And so it's a management question. Are you good at managing money? Are you good at having insights about what's coming? What's, what, what the trends are right now? I'm the chairman of one of the uh, companies that we invested in. And I'm so excited because we're putting together technologies 
um, like artificial intelligence that could be horrible in the way they're used, but they also could be really useful in the way they're used. So our, the company's called Infinite Workflow, and it's we have patents in workflow that we've used in the healthcare space. Now we're using them to connect social services to each other and to people so that they can actually design their pathway to success in the world. Uh, people that are right now, you know, underinsured or uninsured that can get the help that they need, but they can plan their own curriculum and be empowered to do that through technology. And then the technology can track which agencies are actually helping people, which, which sequence of, of agencies seems to be the best sequence. You know, do you need to do, which one do you need to do first? That can all be tracked with artificial intelligence and we'll be able to prove what's called the, the um, social determinants of health are actually more specifically powerful in, in helping people have healthy lives than ERs. You know, the ERs are just flooded with, with homeless people and people that don't have insurance and it costs each hospital a million dollars a year. It's going to be on average, um, it's going to be um, a very profitable idea to be able to help people um, not get sick by having a house over their head and, and being educated and understanding finances and budgeting and, you know. What I love, Ben, what I love about the way you carry an arc, you know, the, the story, <laughs> the flow of your stories is you're referring to a path. Uh, for people to be able to na navigate the world. And I, what I, I think we've gotten from this conversation is the path that you followed from being that, you know, one of 11 children of an extraordinary family, you're, that, that year where your dad got the white hair, right? So, mm -hmm. but from that, that, so that deep social responsibility, the deep, we have to serve, we have to help others, we, we need. And what's fascinating to me is that you brought that into art, because you wanted to change things in your own way. And immediately you said, oh man, look at the earth. I throw something in there, it sprouts. Holy cow, that's amazing. Let's not put all those chemicals in there. For 10 years, that was your life. One of my best friends is an organic farmer. So I, I'm, I love that obsession. Mm -hmm. And then guess what? Finance, money, growth, life, it all hangs together. It all comes together. So, So in closing here, I'd love to get your, you know, where can folks find you? Where can they tap into your your world and you know grow their own path? Well, uh, the simplest way. I mean, I'm, we're we're not um, we don't use our website well. We haven't kept it up to date. But you can find me just by emailing me. My last name Bingham B I N G H A M at Three Sisters Invest. The number three. And then sistersinvest.com. I'd actually be happy to hear from people directly and just see what your interest is and where I can help you move because um, we all need to move in harmony and, and uh, everybody's important. So if you're moved by this in any way, um, I'd be interested to hear from you. Also to get ideas for uh, completing my next book, which um, maybe uh, another edition of Making Money Matter with more information or maybe a new book altogether. 
but I I think the world is is you know in a strange place right now. There's a lot of un uh, clarity um, about what's really going on, and so I kind of have held back my next book because I I wanted to see where things are going more. Maybe I should have been more bold and put something out there that would move things. I think what's what in 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 closing from us, I think. I, I love the idea that you would write another book for this time because your voice, the calm, mm-hmm. is what the 2020s need. Mm-hmm. The wisdom, the calm, the sensibility, everything hangs together. I think that is a message for the youngest generation as well as those of us who aren't the youngest. Thank you. And, and you know, another, uh, I'm going to give a little nod to a young person who is, if, you know, if you're a younger person and you really want to be part of a global movement, it's not formed well yet, but it's going to be formed. And I think it's, I believe in it. And it's called Logos Capital, L-O-G-O-S Capital. And the, the guy who is, uh, I've been kind of mentoring there is Silvio Pupocasco. Uh, he's in Miami, so you can look up Logos Capital. There'll be more stuff coming along that as you reach out to me, I can. There's so much in movement right now. Um, a group called Future for Impact um, will be evol- evolving, and I'm involved with that as well. Uh, so that'll be a source of information about impact opportunities around the world that will incorporate one of my dreams, which is to have a search engine that's open source and that is going to point people in the direction of things that they can do for the good of all. Well, thank you so much, Ben. We've totally enjoyed talking with you and uh, thank you for spending just those few minutes with us. Um, Well, it was my pleasure. It's always exciting to talk to somebody who is a true thought leader and, uh, and we welcome your thoughts and we encourage people to connect with you to see what they can do to also be a part of Impact Investing. We'll talk to you again soon, hopefully. Okay, thank you so much. It was my honor. So thanks, Ben. This was, as usual, one of the most exciting and interesting podcasts. So all our guests bring something special to us, but you brought something very, very different. You brought us a story that is just remarkable, and the impact that story has had on your life is also remarkable. So thank you for sharing that personal side. We're pretty obsessed with making an impact. And if um, you're kind of thinking about how you can make a bigger impact, you can visit us online at uh, thoughtpartnergroup.com and fill out a one-minute assessment. There's a button at the top of the page. And we'll look at that assessment and get right back to you. Also, what we would like you to do right now Press that little subscribe button down below so that you never miss out on any of our podcasts going forward. And that's about it. Have a great day and don't forget to... uh, Brush your teeth before you go to bed. That's right. Chompers is pretty much all we got. Mm -hmm.